We have for two months now been studying the ninth commandment, Thou shalt not bear false witness. These various commandments are, under the heading of the ninth, are variations on the subject of perjury. False witness in every form, we can say generally, is prohibited. But these various commandments have subtle variations that are important. It is important, therefore, to study each of these commandments in terms of their variations. Our text today lays down some of the general principles as an amplification of the ninth commandment. One of the best declarations concerning the meaning of the ninth commandment was given in the latter years of the 17th century by Dr. Isaac Bell, one of the great divines of the Church of England who is too little appreciated today. Dr. Bell wrote, and I quote, It is in the Hebrews Thou shalt not answer to it, being examined or adjured in judgment against thy neighbor as a false witness. So that primarily it means bearing false testimony against our neighbor, especially in matters of capital or of high concern to him, is prohibited. Yet that not only this great crime, but that all injurious, even extrajudicial, prejudicing our neighbor's reputation and consequently his safety or his welfare in any sort is forfeited. We may correct from that explication of this law or that parallel law which we have in Leviticus, Thou shalt not, it is said there, go up and down as a tale-bearer among thy people. Neither shalt thou stand against the blood of thy neighbor as tale-bearer, that is, a merchant or traitor in ill-reforcing stories concerning our neighbor to his friendship, defaming him or detracting from him or breeding in the mind of men an ill opinion of him, which vile and mischievous practice is otherwise under several names condemned and reproved. Unquote. The law against false witness has primary reference to the cost of law, secondarily with reference to life in a community. As we have seen, the law does not apply when men are seeking to do evil, to destroy life or to steal. We are under no obligation then to tell the truth to them. Therefore, Rahab did the right thing when they sought to see the two men of Israel and slay them to lie to the king's God, their purpose of Egypt. So the midwives of Egypt, in lying to Pharaoh, like Rahab, were blessed by God. Because truth is not to be spoken to evildoers to enable them to further their evil. Similarly, we have seen that there are privileged communications where it is a sin to testify. Communications to a doctor or a minister or a lawyer. 
Now, the law with respect to false witness, therefore, has as its basis justice. That justice be done. We are not to tell the truth. It will lead to injustice, to the murder of a man. If evil men are seeking to slay someone, and we tell the truth as to where he is, we are then going against the very foundation of this commandment, the purpose of which is to further God's justice. Now, in our scripture, Exodus 23, verses 1 to 9, the meaning gives to us the broad requirements of justice as they relate to the Ninth Commandment. Several uh, principles appear in these particular laws, others elsewhere, as we shall see on subsequent weeks. First of all, a godly man, according to our scripture, must move in terms of God's law, not the mob or a multitude. Because the spirit of a mob, however powerful in governing man, is rarely, if ever, the law of God. Therefore, thou shalt not follow a multitude to do evil. Neither shalt thou seek in a cause to decline after many corrupt judgment. In other words, our witness must further judgment or justice. Therefore, we are under no obligation to give any kind of testimony or the truth to anyone who is seeking to rest judgment to do evil. It is not the power of man nor the will of man which should govern us, but the power of God. Second, just as we cannot be governed by a mob, so we cannot be governed by personal consideration. That is, pity for a man because he is poor, according to verse 3, neither shalt thou countenance the poor man in his cause. Nor friendliness to the rich, thou shalt not rest the judgment of thy poor in his cause by favoring the rich. We must not rest judgment by favoring someone because they are young, therefore we feel sorry for them because they are so young, or because they are old and we feel sorry for them, what will happen to them because they are so old. We are to be governed by Judgment, justice. Bribes are, the scripture tells us, an even greater distortion of law because they bind the man to the real issue so that he gives a false witness whether he is a judge or a witness, as verses 7 and 8 make clear. Moreover, as verse 9 reveals, a stranger is to receive the same justice as a friend, and an enemy, according to verses 4 and 5, is due the same justice and assistance in real need as a friend. Third, malicious witness is condemned by our scripture as our false report. Verse 1 is 
very precise here. And the following verses, of course, give instances of it. There is a close and necessary correlation between words and deeds. The advocates of free speech are utterly irresponsible here. There cannot be and never has been totally free speech. And people who talk about free speech today have made a fetish of it. There is no free speech in a crowded theater for anyone to shout back. It is punishable by law. Words have consequences. It is not permissible in the name of free speech. We talk about killing the president as the Black Panther did recently. Nor is it permissible, nor should it be permissible, in the name of free speech to spread false reports concerning men. Free speech has been made a slogan in our day by dishonest men. If you countenance free speech in this absolute sense, you then have to countenance, as they are demanding, free action in the same absolute sense. That men are free to say and do as they please. There is a correlation between words and action. Malice in words means malice in deeds. Also, a dishonest man is a corrupt witness and a dangerous friend. Thus, free speech is not the biblical law. Responsible speech is. Neither is absolute truth-telling at all times and in all places and all conditions the biblical law. Truth-telling to further judgment, not to cooperate with evil men when they seek to commit murder or to rob and to defraud men. It is a sin to tell them the truth. Words thus are important. How important? Now in the ancient world, men believed that words have a magical power. As a result, because of their faith that word and act are creatively related, they believe that the spoken word had a divine power. Paganism was humanistic. Humanism holds, of course, that man is God. And therefore, whenever you have humanism, man's word has creative power. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He said, let there be light, and there was light. Because God being God, his word creates. 
instantaneously, totally, perfectly. Now, paganism, because it believes that man is his own God, because it has submitted to the temptation of Satan, you shall be as God, knowing, determining for yourself what is good and evil. Man, therefore, was claiming by submitting to Satan's temptation to be as God, to have a creative work. As a result, you find in ancient paganism the search for the word. And all kinds of ancient stories, religious in origin, but now fairy tales, give us that magic word search, open sesame, abacadabra, and other words in various languages and traditions, all of which witness to the fact that sinful man, having declared he is God, was in search of the creative word whereby he could say the word and it would be done. This, of course, we still have in occultism and in secret societies with their passwords. The background of the various lodges with their secret passwords is the pagan belief that these secret passwords have magical powers. And you do find, for example, in the older Masonic writings, which are rather soft-pedaled now, certain magic words which could only be pronounced on certain occasions and which had supernatural power, supposedly. Now, modern humanism also makes man its God. And therefore, it is not without very definitely not without this same belief in the power of man to a creative word, to a magic word as it were. As a result, your typical liberal and leftist prefers a great phrase maker to anyone else. Hence the popularity of someone like President Kennedy, who is an impotent evil president, but very much loved by the liberal, as against Johnson, who did more than any other liberal president, but had no gift in praise-making. Stevenson, another very impotent man, Adlai Stevenson, was also very much idolized because of his verbalizing. This kind of thing is a witness to their belief and work, in the creative work, man being his own God. But a very much clearer example of this is the faith of humanists in the power of rationally conceived plans and ideas, especially since Kant and Hegel. Modern man, claiming to be his own God, believes in the power of the word. Man's word. The real is the rational, and the rational is the real, if we take it. All man has to do is to arrive at the rational, the logical, or the scientific, however he finds the 
creative word of man. And then, ipso facto, he has arrived at the modern equivalent, the open sesame or abacadabra. Hence, the liberal belief in the power of legislation. You pass the law, and suddenly it solves, they believe, everything. Until the civil rights law was passed, and it was believed that infant utopia was here. And somehow, they feel that some evil elements in the government and in society are responsible for frustrating everything because this is the magic word. And on the one hand, the students rob against the government because somehow they are frustrating the magic word, and the government clobbers businessmen because they are frustrating the magic word, this civil rights act. A belief in the omnipotence of man's word because man is the god of the new religion. The word is the act. As a result, the humanistic intellectuals assume that once their rational or scientific plans are conceived, they need only to be declared to become a reality. It is their word. They are the ones who, having realized themselves to be the gods, the elite planners, they have only to pronounce the word, and it is the divine creative word. Now the biblical position concerning speech, thought, witness, is radically different from this. Man, because he is created in the image of God, speaks not a creative word, not a divine word, but an analogical word. What does that mean? It means that man can think God's thoughts after him, and this is his function. Man's power, therefore, is in thinking God's thoughts after him, and obeying those works. Man exercises power, therefore, under God to the extent that he speaks and acts in terms of God's created word. Hence it is wicked for men to take the ninth commandment and to divorce it from God, from God's justice, from God's total word, and say, I'm supposed to tell the truth even if a man comes and he wants to know where my wife is to raise her. I've heard a minister say this. This is to divorce the word from God. Thou shalt not bear false witnesses in terms of God's world, God's justice, God's purpose for furthering his kingdom. Man exercising dominion under him. The temptation of Satan was, as we have seen, that man could speak his own divine creative word. He shall be as God, knowing good and evil. Man will, according to Satan, when he speaks his own word and cuts himself loose entirely from God, establish his own divine word. 
He can declare for himself what is good and evil and order all reality in terms of his own word. In the world of Satan, man's word is the act, and the new world is born when man totally separates himself by word from God. But man was created in the image of God. And the word he speaks must be in terms of God and of his woman. Speech is important to man. Two of the Ten Commandments have to do with speech. The third and the ninth. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in faith. Neither shalt thou tear falsely. When man gives false witness, when he takes the name of the Lord in vain or acts in violation of it, man then denies the image of God in favor of Satan's claim that man makes himself. Of course, this is precisely what modern philosophy is doing. John Paul Sartre says that man must, by his own creative word, create himself out of nothing. He is devoted his major work, being and nothingness, to declare that man has no essence, man cannot be defined. Man must create himself out of nothing and then define his own essence in terms of his own creative work. Man makes himself, Sartre holds, in terms of the own, his own image as he visualizes himself. Sartre, then, is affirming Satan's position. But wherever man gives true witness in the full sense of the word, there he grows in terms of the restored image of God. Our scripture makes it clear that faithful witness is a part of a way of life, a spirit of justice as defined by God. Faithful witness transcends the personal issues such as friendship or enmity. It has reference not to us as individuals, but to God and to his purposes. Truth-telling may therefore be detrimental to us, but it must further God's justice. It can never be used to bring about injustice. God's law must govern our speech, not man's ideas of free speech or truth As Dr. Van Hill has said, God is the original and man is the derivative. Because man is the derivative, therefore man's every standard, including his concept of speech, must be derived from God. Van Hill has further said, if one does not make human knowledge fully dependent upon the original self-knowledge and consequent revelation of God to man, then man will have to seek knowledge within itself as the final reference point. Unquote. 
translated into the world of law, this means that the point of reference in speech is not man, it is God. The law does not permit us to use ourselves as a standard. The analogical word means the obedient word. The words of Rahab were obedient words, obedient to God, not to man. The words of the midwives of Egypt were obedient words, obedient to God, not to Pharaoh. Both of them risked their lives in being obedient to God and disobedient to man. David so defined the man who gave true witness. He that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not. David in Psalm 15 gives us the significance of true witness in a commentary on the commandment. David declared, Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? He that walketh uprightly and worketh righteousness and speaketh the truth in his heart. He that backbiteth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil to his neighbor, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor, in whose heart, in whose eyes a vile person is contempt, but he honoreth them that fear the Lord. He that dwelleth to his own hurt and changeth not. He that putteth not out his money to use rain, or taketh reward against his innocent. He that doeth these things shall never be moved. Notice how David speaks of the man who bears true witness. It begins, first of all, in the heart. He speaketh the truth in his heart in his relationship to the Lord. The commandment has reference primarily to God and to his justice, to his requirements of us, not the requirements of men. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Trust that the Lord. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, by thy grace grant that we ever seek the truth in our hearts unto thee. And day by day in our relationship with neighbor and enemy, be governed by thy law and thy trust. Grant that we move never in the fear of man, but in the fear of thee that we may be blessed by thee and amidst all the changes and pressures of this world may never be moved but stand fast in thy righteousness and truth. Bless us for this purpose in Jesus' name.